It's snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. Pistachios are known for their protein power, fiber, and better for you unsaturated fats for a combination that may help you keep feeling fuller longer. Wonderful Pistachios is a good source of protein with zero gill. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. I love that they come in a variety of sizes and flavors, making this the perfect protein snack for any on-the-go adventure. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the FlowTrack Podcast. FlowTrackPodcast at gmail.com is the email address. I'm Kevin Sully, joined by Gordon Mack and our special guest today, two-time Olympic medalist Nick Willis. Nick, thank you for coming on. How are you doing? Hey, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time doing a video podcast as well, so this is sort of fun. Trying to decide, do I look at you or Gordon or I put my own videos? I'm still trying to navigate this stuff. We're all, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat there. Uh, I saw a video uh, on Instagram of your son hopping over you on a skateboard. Is that an average day in the Willis household during lockdown? No, I had my skateboard next to me after, over the ramp, on the other side of the ramp. He was on a BMX bike. That's his jam at the moment. Okay. Him, and, <laughs> him and his neighbors have competitions who can jump the furthest. I think they got out to like nine feet is the, is the record at the moment for, off of this little launch ramp. So, yeah, we're going to have to find out um, if we can get some more um, padding or protective wear because it's getting a little dangerous. Nick, we're, we're recording this podcast on a Wednesday. Just a few moments ago, I'm not sure if you were on the internet, but another uh, elite athlete, Jacob Ingebrigtsen, ran 13.29 in Norway on in a road 5K, like a little mini race they created. Did you watch that race? Did you no, I, I, I've been doing some work all day, but I just checked before this um, to see what the result was. And I saw the times, like, oh, that's solid. But then I saw that he ran something like a 5.02 for the last, 2k which um is a serious kick down that's sort of the stuff that prefontaine was trying to emulate way back in the day you know do a, a long drive and five laps to go so it sounds like those guys have stayed motivated stayed in shape and um yeah it's good to see people um still blitzing sometimes even with everything else being shut down it definitely inspire my workout this evening what's the workout this evening I'm going to do five by a mile, just my first time sort of doing anything um, off structure. So just one of the easier ones before trying to link it up in the proper tempo run. Mm -hmm. Do you feel you've done this for many, many years now, but no one's ever been this through this type of situation. How are you planning your training right now? Uh, the way I've tried to look at it and my wife sort of has sort of, verbalized it in a much more articulate way to my family and stuff who are saying oh i'm so sorry this must be so hard for you and the truth is as an athlete especially in my experience i've been through so many injuries suffered so many setbacks where you have to sit out for three or four months at a time we've sort of become used to suddenly all of your plans being thrown out the window and you've got to recalibrate and set new goals and all that the only difference with this from our personal standpoint is that I'm not injured this this there's been a setback but it's not my, your physical setback so it's challenging and you know everyone else is having a really difficult time in the world so you try and support people as best as possible um but for your own situation it's um yeah it's it's a better situation than what i've experienced before from a running standpoint when there's been a setback and you also have a job now you announced that last week you'll be working with 
track smith what's the what's the nick willis resume like with jobs because you've been at this running thing for a while how many how many regular jobs have you had in your life uh not too many a lot of them involved getting my hands pretty dirty and then clean again i was a dishwasher for a half a dozen years and my <laughs> starting when i was about 13 years old working my way up through some of the the more challenging kitchens in lower hut my hometown and i'm um, yeah enjoying being on the, that side of the the kitchen um and the restaurant biz and then i, I worked at a, a coin and stamp collector shop buying stuff off of people who had um, gotten rid of their collections and posting it on eBay. And then pretty much other than being a student athlete, I haven't had any other proper jobs. My wife and I have um, done some projects and had some of our own businesses we've run, but this is the first time being employed for a long, long time. So it's, yeah, it's actually quite a, a rejuvenating and invigorating experience. Um, being a fly on the wall, I just feel like I'm a sponge soaking everything up and I get to be my own character in the TV show Office, which my wife and I have watched about <laughs> 15 times through, you know, so that's sort of fun. Do you, uh, what exactly, what's changing, I guess, for you? You say you're not just sponsored, you're, you're employed now by Tracksmith, and you said turning amateur. What's going to be different about training in these next year and a half compared to what the past years have been like? Perhaps there will be my training might need to make sure that it, it, I, I check my calendar every day now or the night before I go to bed and see what meetings I have. And other than meetings, I can be really flexible and um, work my training around that. So there, there might be a few adjustments needed to make for what time of the day that I do my training. But otherwise, it, it won't be really too different from a running standpoint. It really just switches my mindset from being trying to attempt to be an entrepreneur. I've sort of spent the last decade um, brainstorming all these different ideas, executing some of them, putting some of them to the side and always working on projects and thinking about how I'm going to hustle my way into my post running career to now realizing that my post running career has already started now. And that sort of takes away some of those anxieties or stresses, or they were also exciting moments being having that mindset as, um, as always keeps you on your toes. But now I get to sort of, I know what the plan is now and I can sort of allocate my, my time accordingly. There's a lot easier to plan. What's the vacation policy at Tracksmith? Because are you going to have to count vacation days when you're at the Olympics? Like, how's that work? It's like, Hey, you never get to <laughs> like, do, do your track meets count towards uh, PTO pay time off? My hope is that, um, no, I, for all my running stuff that counts towards my job description, I, I'm in the marketing team. So what's the best way that I can help the marketing team? I hope that my ideas and my, the work that I put in on Monday to Friday is valuable, but let's be honest, I provide as much, if not more value if, if I continue to still race. So that will still be a major priority, but not the only priority. Um, but yeah, we are fortunate. We sort of have an open, um, vacation time policy is not a set number of days, just so long as you get your work done, um, they're very flexible with that. So I, yeah, it's, I've been quite impressed with um, their approach to how they take care of us employees. I My first week of work was my birthday and I got sent a care package from my favorite deli here in Annapolis. So I was like, wow, I've, I've really fallen into the, the, the best situation. It's been, it's been great so far. Is there a chance since you've never done this 
this split role. I mean, you said you've had other projects and tried your hand at other businesses, but this is the farthest you've gone in. Is there a chance that this really rejuvenates your running and the mental outlook is better for running, more healthier, more balanced? Yeah, there was a, a really challenging time right after the um, the New Zealand Down Under season had finished, just before they had officially announced the Olympics were going to be postponed. I felt like I'd reached my goal. I'd done everything I could do to qualify for Tokyo. I'd hit all of my different targets, and I think I'd done enough to be named on a New Zealand team, which was supposed to be announced. I think April 7th was going to be the announcing date. And then when all of this news was coming out, is Tokyo going to happen or not? And they kept saying, yes, it is. And deep in my heart, I was really struggling for motivation. Um, I'd sort of felt like I'd done all my running goals um, and I wasn't really sure. But this is suddenly, I wasn't expecting it to, to be honest. And it wasn't the primary reason for, for taking this path. But it has given me a huge amount of sort of like rejuvenated excitement about it. And it's not just about seeing if I can go through to Tokyo, but I can't imagine, I can't see a, an end in sight now. I'm not looking for the light in the tunnel. I feel like I'm experiencing the light right now as running being the journey rather than looking forward to it all being finished. So I think that with the announcement, um, Tracksmith did an amazing job at getting the news out there and presented it in a certain way. And, um, and it was fun to be a part of that, but it also has now given me a little bit of accountability as well. Like, I better make sure this works to prove that this is a successful concept. Uh, we, Mary and I are a little bit of sort of the, the test subjects of, is this a model that can be successful both from a company standpoint, but also from an athlete standpoint. So I'm sure a lot of people will be observing with keen interest and I'm, I'm really keen to, to do my part to show that it can work and work well. Among athletes that are 30 and older, let's say, how much do they think about, how much do they stress about their post-track lives? To be honest, I don't think it's just the 30 plus. I think after maybe one or two years out of college, like, because you get that question every day, what what do you do when you meet a stranger or someone who doesn't really know you? That's the most common question. Well, I'm a, I'm a professional track and field athlete and people don't even know that that is a, a feasible career path. You know, even if you've won an Olympic medal, they don't know that that's something you can actually make money. So when you answer that question, you start asking yourself, what do I do? And, um, and if, if you face an injury or if you, um, if you start having a struggling season, aren't able to see a, an upward um, trajectory in your earning potential, you're really making a lot of sacrifices because it's not just the, the money you're leaving on the table, what you could be earning in another job now, each year in a, the real world career path, is your 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 income potential will grow as you as you move on through that career. But if you join the the professional working world, ten years later, you're going to start right back down at the bottom again. So you're missing out on all of that exponential growth in your income potential. So I'm sure a lot of us think about it all the time and. You try and put it off at times and there are seasons where I've had that as a focus and the seasons where I haven't cared about it at all. And um, this has definitely been a, a really great blessing. It takes a lot of that, um, that stress or burden away, especially if you're in Europe and you're not having the best races. Um, and then you're thinking, was, was this a waste of a trip when I should have been doing something else? It takes that pressure off and you can just go run those races freely without that 
um, that doubt or wonder whether you should have been doing something else. Was, is there a part of your brain that thinks that coaching is a future for you? Because a lot of some athletes go into become a high school coach, college coach, pro coach. Um, you obviously aren't doing that right now. You're going more in the marketing uh, angle. But is coaching an option that you're still thinking about in the years down the road? It's something I've always had a, a really keen fascination on, especially a fascination with, especially the the theory of it. I love the idea of writing out training plans and tweaking that and tweaking this and asking different people in different training groups what they do, why they do it, all of that sort of stuff. There's been seasons when the idea of standing at a track, holding a stopwatch, watching people run lap after lap, excites me and other times at that I couldn't imagine any worse place to be. I'm not sure if I've always <laughs> been like that. There's times when I'm a real people person where I really just want to teach and serve an athlete and other times where I'd rather be um, more behind the scenes helping support other coaches or create some um, theory behind running. So I go back and forth with that stuff and that's something where there's opportunities within this role where coaching could become one of the strings in my bow um, to help set up programming and coordinating different groups or teams or supporting people from all levels of running, um, not just at the elite level, but at the very beginning and all of the way up and in between. Um, so that's stuff I'm really keen to explore as well, and we'll see where that goes. Um, but I was really interested hearing an interview with Mike Smith the other day, and he's now regarded as one of the best coaches in America, and especially in the NCAA. And I didn't really know anything about his backstory and to realize that he hadn't pursued that path from the beginning. He sort of just fell into it with different areas. So yeah, I'm definitely keeping my eyes open, but I don't want to pigeon my pigeonhole myself into just being a one dimensional um, person after my running career is over. It's just coaching is my only option. I'd like to enjoy all facets of the sport, event promotion, um, helping um, market the sport better, but also um, from the coaching standpoint as well. A lot of athletes, when they're again to the second half of their career, kind of want to visualize how it will finish. You know, obviously the, the best way to finish a career is Olympic gold medalist. It's perfect, right? That's the swan song. Um, but that's also very rare and very hard to do and doesn't really happen for many people even at all. So what, how are you kind of planning or expecting your career to come to a conclusion? Like, how are you visualizing it? Do you say, hey, it's all about just making my one more Olympic team and that is uh, the bow? Or like, how are you bowing your, your career? At different stages of the last decade, I've had different mindsets about that. I think initially I thought I wanted this ideal way to go out, right? And Rio could have been the perfect opportunity. I won a medal. I was 33 years old. It could have been the perfect opportunity. But when you have one of the best races of your life, it's like, I don't want it to end now. I Now I can sort of pick and choose how I want to do my sport. I can get into whatever races I want. There's more lucrative opportunities, appearance money-wise, all of that sort of stuff. Um, then I suffered an injury and I had to take half a year off. And when you're injured, all you want to be able to do again is run. You really appreciate just the simple side of running. Um, and then I was struggling after that injury. And so I just wanted to experience feeling like my old self again. So that's the journey I've been on the last few years. It hasn't necessarily been thinking about 
how I want to go out. I just have been on that journey of trying to rediscover some of my old form and which has been a, a fun journey in and of itself. Sort of just like when you take off time at the end of a season, it's sort of fun getting way out of shape and not feeling and experiencing that improvement each, um, each and every week. My wife's the one that's encouraged me most of all to not focus on seeing the end specific date, but just enjoying the sport and doing like it's a great privilege that I have and to be able to still run sub four minute miles at my age and maybe still for a few more years after. And there's so many other people around the world that would dream to have this opportunity to run one sub four minute mile. So the best way that I can honor them and to be appreciative of this ability that I've been blessed with um, is to, to keep doing it and not just sort of throw it away and say, I don't really care about that. So I'm not always in tune with that mindset, but my wife is really good at encouraging me with me with that right now. And that's the state of mind that I'm in right now. And it is a much more um, healthy approach to not really think of running as a, a beginning and end date, but it's a, it's a, thing I will do for my life. It just may have more seasons of intense focus and other seasons where it's sort of second or third or fourth focus in my life. But I'd love to be involved in different facets and um, you will see where it takes me. The consecutive sub four mile streak has a nice ring to it. How are you one year off of that? How how close are you to that? Well, I, w I wasn't really aware of it at all um, until this season. Then I got an email from a buddy who said, oh, you're tired of Sir John Walker at 18 years in a row. My my good buddy and former training partner, Nate Brannon um, from Canada, he was a Michigan Wolverine also. He, um, he told me he wanted to come back next year to see if he could do a sub 400 mile 20 years apart from his first one to a second one. So that was the first time I sort of thought about all of that sort of like um, longevity of sub fours. And so, yeah, it's, it's a fun little challenge. And if I had to go two more years to beat a record, I might think oh, I'll flag it. But since I've only got to go one more season, I'll, I'll try it. And if I'm successful, I'm only two years away from going for the doing it at 40 years of, of age, which is sort of the, the natural master's age. And I remember when Walker and Steve Scott and Eamon Coughlin were all trying to achieve that. And, Probably doesn't seem as remarkable now since Legat ran a 3.54 at 41. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a personal challenge that, um, that I'd love to, to have a go at if my body still holds up. What you're describing there is just that's the way Legat never retired and Meb or Abdi, those guys who have been running forever never retired. Well, I get I check off this box and then I'm really close to this box and all oh, the Olympics are coming again. So I might as well just do one yeah. more Olympics, right? You just keep talking yourself into it. It's amazing how suddenly just having a two months of switching my mind off and not caring about the Olympics, suddenly like one year away doesn't seem that far at all. But back in March, like, oh my goodness, they're extending it all the way to August next year. Like, I don't know if I can go that long. Like, but now we're already almost into June. It's like, oh, another year. Like, let's get going. Let's let's do this thing. Let's get training. Yeah. Once you're within that 12 month bubble that everything seems feasible because it's within one full training cycle. But when you set goals beyond that one year training cycle, it's hard to imagine like coming out of shape and building up again. So I think I'll just continue to try and take things year by year and reevaluate my goals and um, how my body's responding to different training and we'll make those decisions at that point. But it's been awesome to be on this journey with my coach Ron Warhurst since 2002 and 
we had a phone call the other day deciding that we're going to have a, a set peak for this season, even if there aren't any races. Well, you got to have some purpose to what you do each day. And um, that's been a, a real refreshing experience as well, that now we have a plan in place to try and aim for a September peak. And that's the same sort of approach we'll probably take in future years as well. You say September peak. Uh, will, will you... I like to think positive. I think I'm a more, a more positive person. I think we're going to have track in the fall. Uh, but if, if we do have it, will you participate in those some of those Diamond Leagues, maybe even run at Prefontaine and, and Eugene? I haven't thought about specific races. Um, I'd love to do some more sort of smaller boutique meets if possible. I haven't been down to the Memphis um mile that they do i haven't been down to the one that's down in north carolina i'd love to do um the long island mile again that car mover puts on i'd love to do some more of those types of events and probably not focus as much on the diamond league this year i'm really trying to build up as many emotional as much emotional reserve as i can before the big sort of launch into the olympic year so that's i probably will stay domestic this year and not head over to europe especially if there are from my understanding is there's a good likelihood that they will have like a two-week quarantine requirement if you head over to europe for some of those races and i don't want to have to deal with that this year especially with my kids and stuff if uh if there are no domestic meets how will you create a september peak without races uh i would just set up some time trials we'll um we'll either try and beat some sort of famous loops here in Ann Arbor that I've been training on for the last 20 years and try and race against the ghosts of Alan Webb and Kevin Sullivan and all of the greats that have come through the program here, or maybe just set up some time trials on the track. And I've talked to Mason Fairlock and some of the other guys who train around here. If, if they start easing some of the, um, the number of um, people that you can hang out with, increasing those, I suppose, um, then Mason and I can do some time trials at different distances or be pacemakers for each other as well. If he wants to try a, a distance, I'll rabbit him and vice versa. So there's a, lot, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. And when you're in your own training hood, it's a, I'm just as motivated for certain workouts as I am for races because there's like you're trying to beat your own self from the last 20 years to, to run the fastest time on a specific hill that you've ever done before. It's like aiming for a personal Strava segment, I suppose. <laughs> what, um, we're in an era where we're all nostalgic for sports just in general, and we're watching old sports all the time. I found myself watching that Rio Olympic final that you brought up. What are your memories of that race? Cause when I rewatched it, it was crazier than I, remember it being in the time just all the i watched it with my eyes on kiprop because someone was saying how did kiprop not outkick centro i said i don't know i kind of forgot and i watched him just pinball around the entire field which he had done before but you were calm cool and collected it appeared it was a quintessential willis race what do you remember about it uh there's several sort of key moments the one thing i really remember most is before the race started we were caught in the call room just in the last year they started or before that olympics they started that thing where they bring each athlete out individually between the fire flames and they try and do like a mm. wwe introduction onto the track you know in order for that to work they hold you in this sort of little pen inside of the 
the stadium and there's nowhere for you to do any strides or stay warm. And so we were just all sort of being shuffled around like herd in a, like cattle in a pen. Um, and I remember everyone was looking down at the ground doing these little like shuffle jogs, trying to keep warm, but no one wanted to, to keep, to eye each other in the face. Cause there's, we were there for like 20, 25 minutes. And I knew that at that point it was going to be a slow start to the race because all of our muscles must have all been tight where you're nervous enough as it is. And that sort of takes away that, so that loose feeling that you have in your legs. We didn't have any time for strides after that. It was like they take you straight to the line and you haven't moved for 25 minutes. So um, I knew it was going to be a slow race and it was, it was an absolute dawdle, which I was sort of relieved about because normally if you've seen any of my races in the past, I hate running wide. I always love to be on the rail. I, I can't handle the idea of running a further distance than 1500 meters if I hit, if I have to, but, but that race was so slow that it didn't matter if I ran wide. So I was finally able to do what everyone has always told me to do, like get off the rail, get into position, all of this sort of stuff. And I didn't have to concern myself an extra three or four meters per lap when you're only running 68 seconds a quarter doesn't matter. It makes no difference to your kick at the end. So I was able to, to be more aggressive and be in position near the front. Um, and then suddenly with 8.50 to go, Kiprop made a big swooping move around um, the field and cut back down and that shuffled me into the inside. And then I found myself back in the position that I'm more accustomed to being on is on the rail when the pace started to heat up and with 600 meters to go that's when the pace really started ramping up we started rolling out 27 second pace for 200 meters and ben blankenship and i were right in that point like who's gonna get the the, the pole position behind century it's heading into that um home straightaway in the penultimate lap and um he sort of fought me for that position but i had the inside around he he almost bumped me off the track um and i sort of stumbled a bit and lost a bit and but i was managed to to hold that position fortunately if he had stopped me from that i i probably wouldn't uh been able to be in position to get a medal and i think the race really dictated itself in that next 100 meters those of us who were able to run controlled before the bell meant we had full anaerobic reserves to run a full last lap sprint. But Kiprop, Agita, McLuffy, and a couple of other guys who had to surge before the bell, that meant that they had to do a 470 or 450 meter sprint. And if you watch the home straight in the, in the final lap, those guys all faded in the last 50, 70 meters, not because they're slower, but because they had already used up. You've only got so much anaerobic reserves in your body and it caught up to them by that point because they had to start their sprint an extra 50 or 70 meters um, before the rest of us did. So yeah, it was, it was all about the bit leading into the bell when it's such a slow race um, prior to that, you basically have to run it like you would a 600 meter race. <clears throat> the call room image that you just painted for us, maybe that'll be a relic of the past in a, in a post pandemic world where everybody's crammed and can't even do a stride. <laughs> I didn't think about that. That's a really good point. So maybe they'll just let us all out on the track, but different portions of it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing sometimes that the officials get so caught up in making things all ordered and structured, they totally forget about what are they there for? They want to watch the best athletes in the world run as fast as they possibly can. But how can you when you're not able to do your, your normal um, preparation routine? Yeah, that's, that's just crazy to me that a, a high school JV 
mile race you can be more prepared for than an olympic final because they can let you do strides on the infield all day but you they have they change the rules in the most important time that's that's incredible that you guys are able to stay poised under that circumstance yeah it's not just the olympic final most of the diamond leagues set it up like that as well monaco is the one with uh the most um athlete friendly in that you only have to show up to the core room like seven minutes before the race and you're basically ready by then and then even when you're in the core room you can they still let you do strides a lot of the officials around the world will once you enter the core room they won't let you leave it again unless you have a chaperone with you and even when they bring you out on the track they'll be blocking you off from cutting across the javelin or the high jump area and all of that sort of stuff so yeah it's that's where being experienced, I guess, you just learn to roll with the punches and not let it stress you out too much. Nick, I remember one time interviewing you after a race or before a race, sometime on the Europe circuit a few years ago, and you mentioned the weight of a bib have been has gone drastically heavier and heavier every season. <laughs> Do you see a correlation in your <laughs> Do you see a correlation in your success and the weight of your bib? Like were the Rio bibs? like a lot less in Rio and the Beijing bibs, were they light? <laughs> no, it's not just the, the bibs themselves. They have these like little plastic sleeves in the back of them, which they put these mm -hmm. transponders in and they are to like send a signal through their computer so that everyone, all the fans get to see what your splits are every hundred meters in the race on the TV screen. But these things are really heavy. Um, and that's, yeah, that's another stressful thing. And you can't pre put your bib on before you show up to the stadium because they give it to you with the transponder and at the stadium. So you, you only get it 20 minutes before your race in the core room. It'd be nice to be able to have that all taken care of. So you're not trying to fiddle with, um, safety pins and all of that when you're in sort of, you're a nervous wreck 20 minutes before the race, but there we all are bending over on the cheers trying to get our safety pins into our shirts 20 minutes before the olympic final yeah it's some of the logistics are a bit ridiculous i really appreciated the pre-classic um took the initiative a couple of years where they gave us these sort of more material based bibs which just straight stuck onto our shirts and mm. that's probably the closest thing to what the guys in the 60s had peter snell they just used to have like a cotton number with which they stitched on beforehand the night before with a cotton and thread, but that sort of naturally sort of molded to your shirt so it wouldn't get floppy in the wind or anything. You got to also feel for the, even though the women, it's probably even more extreme because a lot of them don't have a full kit, you know, so it's even less surface area. So you're like, just feel like you have like a, a coat hanger in your, in your bib. But at least for the women, they're not wearing longer shorts so they can stick their hip numbers just to their skin. Because we've got shorts on or half tights, they make us pin our numbers onto our shorts in case they get floppy. But And they do, because you're sweating, this, the stick never works. And so you end up having these sails on your short with the catching the wind as well. It's not very aerodynamic. I feel like Mo Farah's hip number was never on his shorts and it lasted about one lap in every Olympic oh, race. I put it as loose as possible on my, on my sh shorts or on my leg so that they come off on my final stride before the, the gun goes off. And then they can't <laughs> do anything after that. <laughs> what's, what's your favorite mile or 1500 meter race of all time? It could be one that you were in yourself or just as a fan. Uh, as a fan, the 2017 women's 1500 meter race, 
that was amazing and there was so much hype going into that race and they had pretty much the the top seven or eight women that have been running in, yes. the, in the world the last decade with jenny and laura muir and safan and um faith kip yegan and um who's the one that was coached by jama art and i'm glad i forgot her name the barber <laughs> she got so many- in that race yeah. And not to mention Casta Semenya, like she was the yeah. X factor. No one knew how she would do in a 1500 meters as well. And man, that was the right, if you, I could watch it again and get goosebumps, like you, and Casta comes with a huge flurry right at the very end. And the, the, the change in order in the last 150, 200 meters was unbelievable. You don't normally get a lot of that in a 1500 meters. So that's probably the one that if I were to ever tell someone why the 1500 meters is a great race to watch, that's where I would point them. Um, for me, the most memorable would have to be the, the Beijing Olympic final when I was in that one. Um, just, I, I didn't experience any nerves. I was just so privileged to be in the final. I, I just wanted to get into the final. I didn't really know what else I could do. And I felt no nerves and no pressure. And, I just had this amazing sense of free freedom in my racing that time. And I just never felt tired in that race. Like, honestly, I came to the bell and felt like we still had two laps to go. It was just an amazing feeling. Suddenly with 120 meters to go, I was extremely tired, but, um, that I got to have that battle down the home straight where it's not just who has the most left. It was like who could grit the most in the last 30, 40 meters, me or Medibala to, to get that bronze medal at the time. And um, that's the one that will always go down as sort of me breaking into that next tier of, of international um, 1500 meter runners. And um, yes, I, I wept the whole way around that celebration lap and um, it probably took me 15 minutes. There was just tears of joy, tears of, oh my goodness, the last 25 years of my life have gone into this moment. Now I get to share this with the 80,000 fans and the, four and a half million people watching in New Zealand at three in the morning and all of that sort of good stuff. So yeah, I, um, I definitely have very, very fond memories of, of that moment. That medal, of course, upgraded after because of a doping positive. And then the person now who occupies the gold medal spot as Kiprop is serving a doping ban. Your response when he tested positive was unlike any response uh, I've seen in terms of you were greeting him more with with empathy and almost like a, a forgiveness as opposed to more traditional uh, responses that we see from athletes that are a bit more direct. Um, what what went into that? What went into your approach and your ability to see the situation where you had been wronged, but you were able to understand the complexity of it and the nuance of the the situation? As you described that, I had to sort of recollect exactly what I said publicly versus some <laughs> of the stuff. I mean, no, and this is, there's everything I said was genuine and I had to remember exactly what I said when I said it. Um, but basically the, the thought process that went into all of that is that there was information that was passed on to me several years prior to that, which I then passed on to the IWF, whether it was credible evidence or not, I don't know, but it was given to me from some sources in Kenya, which then I passed on to the IWF, um, which I believed to be true at the time. Um, 
And so I had already gone through a lot of those emotions with my, um, those nearest and dearest to me and sort of processed what that means. And gen generally when one of my competitors tests positive, there's a sense of um, satisfaction that justice has been served. But at the same time, like I have always known right from the very beginning when I decided I want to run at the highest levels, when I was running in the Athens Olympics in 2004 and even before that, I knew what I was signing up for. I wasn't naive to what the what the, the state of our sport was, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was significantly um, more affected by doping than it is now. I'd say now it's only 10 or 15% of what it was at that stage. But I still wanted to pursue it. I still wanted to take advantage of all of the doors that had been opened to me. And those have been an amazing um, opportunities that I couldn't have even dreamed of. And so I've made friends and made, um, well, friends might be a strong word, but I've made um, they're my peers, they're my comrades that I have towed the line with. I've shared those intimate moments in the call rooms um, and in the shared tears with people after the races and, and the, when you're getting your shoes and your tracksuits after a bad race. There's a lot of emotions that go with that. So you have a lot of shared suffering and a lot of shared joy with those athletes, whether they're doping or not. So there is a sense of like, they are human, they are people that we all make mistakes. And so when I really came around to feeling empathetic towards Asbel, it wasn't towards his cheating, but he started saying some pretty scary stuff on social media, um, mm -hmm. talking about carrying a gun. He wasn't sure if, um, if he was going to do something stupid or not. And so I, I realized that sport was a very minor, um, importance right at that very moment there was a lot more at stake and so i wanted to um share my support for him as a person to to get his mind and his um so hopefully he didn't do anything dangerous to himself or to others in that moment little uh lighter uh a topic we were talking cool. about a few uh a week ago dathan Rittenhine uh retired uh, ending the end of that big three era on the U.S. side with Ritz, Webb, and Hall. Um, and we were thinking about Webb, a Michigan alum like yourself, a short Michigan alum, I may add, who's only there for a year, a hot minute. How would you rank the uh, Michigan Miler alma mater? Like if they were all running in their prime college age, who would win in a race? Prime college age. Prime college age, Kevin Sullivan was an animal. Kevin Sullivan won four straight Big Ten titles in the in cross country. Not many people know this. He was a miler. He was top ten at NCA cross all four years in college as a miler. Like to do that as a freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior, there aren't many distance guys who executed that well, let alone a miler. He was um sixth or seventh at the world champs final as a sophomore um he ran 336 on michigan's outdoor track against david krumenecker on a may 5th race in the middle of the midwest you know um that guy put together a much far more impressive resume than alan or nate or i ever did in college over the mile um my breakout year in the 1500 really came in my sophomore year when I had a red shirt year, I, I took off the 
outdoor season to try and qualify for the Athens Olympics. And I had some, some good results, 332, 145, and just missed out on making the final by one spot. But I was redshirted, and then my my other years I focused on the 3K or the 5K, and I, I sort of – my coach did a really good job at managing having two um, – I don't want to say alphas on the team, but two of two of the faster guys in college track on the same team, and Nate and I, to, to make sure that we were able to train together and benefit from each other's training, but we weren't ever going head-to-head in races, and that kept the – um, that kept the relationship strong and training. So he always focused on either the 800 or the 1500 and I was more 1500 5k sort of stuff. Um, so I didn't really ever f- do the same focus in the mile as Kevin did in college, but he, um, even after college, Kevin got fifth at the Olympics in 2000 when, um, doping was still quite heavy in our sport. And I have a huge regard for his career running 350 and 331, um, in an era where there weren't that many people from the West doing all that good in our sport. And he was a big reason why I wanted to get coached by his coach, Ron Warhurst, because that guy must know what he's doing. If he can get a kid from the NCA system to still have a, a really long, um, successful career after college, which wasn't all that common in the nineties and two thousands. Do you ever think about what it would have been like if Webb stayed and you got to be his training partner, you know, in college, both were the same kid at the same time? Yeah, Al and I, Alan and I are still good friends today, and we've had some um, some great times hanging out together. He came to New Zealand for a couple of months um, back in 2010 to do some training with us. But to be honest, I think it was the best thing for my career, the fact that he, he moved on. I'm not sure whether it was the right call for him or not. I've, I haven't even really evaluated that. But I came into college as a freshman pretty heavily undertrained. I was running sort of 40, 50, 60 Ks a week in high school, um, in my, my senior year in high school. Um, and then suddenly I came to Ann Arbor and started running 60 or 70 miles a week. So I was multiplying it by almost double. Um, and Alan's freshman year, there's, it's all, there's been enough stuff written about this in books, the sub four book by Chris Lear and in magazine articles, but he was basically setting workout records twice a week for all the different, um, unique workouts that we have here around the Ann Arbor area. And when he when he left town, it sort of took the burden off of all of the other guys on the team. They're like, oh, that was exhausting trying to hang on to him and treating every workout <laughs> like a race. Now let's just have fun this year. So my freshman year, the year Alan left, they all just said, let's just chill out. So every single workout, we were sort of just cruising, running 10 deep and talking the whole way through tempo runs and 1k and mile repeats in the fall and all that sort of stuff which was the perfect transition for me to like i was increasing my volume so i didn't want to also increase the intensity at the same time so it was the a really great way for me to transition into this new type of training and then once um once i realized that i was able to handle that sort of stuff when it was time for me to up the intensity i was able to train with tim bro who was our assistant coach at the time and the American indoor record holder at 3K and um, ran third and 11 in the 5K. So I was able to do all my strength stuff with him separate of the team. And then all of my speed stuff, there were unlimited guys to do that stuff with. So I think I really benefited from not having, as I said, 
not it's not healthy necessarily to have a head-to-head competitiveness with a training partner it's better to sort of have your own areas of focus but to to help each other improve and that's where Nate and I really flourished because we had different areas of focus on race weekend you talk about how say it helped you with your training but if all that talent though was on the same team at the same time what do you think like the like you guys all going to pen relays together and what that could have been like, you know, running a, a even faster four by mile than what you guys ran. Do you guys think about that? Like if it had been managed, right, perhaps it could have worked, but I really think that I probably would have gotten injured. And I mean, Nate Brandon, his freshman year was 128th at NCA cross because he tried to do the training that, that Alan was doing. Everything was geared around Alan. And the next year when we had that fun year, Nate was like 22nd at NCA cross. Like I think, it does affect how you train and like what made Alan so amazing was the stuff that he could handle. He, his body could withstand really high amounts of intensity. Um, I could never have trained the way that Alan did. I could never have trained the way Chris Salinsky or Craig Montram did. Like we each have our own sort of wheelhouse to work within. And I was uh, thankfully able to, to find that that aligned up a lot with how Tim Bro trained. And I don't ever believe there's the best coach in the world there's it's about there's the right coach for the right athlete or the right situation for the right athlete not everyone works well to go to Bowman. not everyone works well to come with ron warhurst it's about aligning though to find that right relationship with the athlete and the system work best and um i don't think i would have fit in the system where alan was sort of the focal point we have Go, no, I was just saying we have a little bit less than 10 minutes left. So I, we need to get to the most important part of the show yes. because this is sort of – it's sort of a track podcast, but it's mostly, as all podcasts that I'm involved in, a vehicle to talk about the NBA. You are the track and field world's most famous Detroit Pistons fan. Maybe you're the fastest <laughs> Detroit Pistons fan. I think you are. Let's just say you're the fastest Detroit Pistons fan uh, in the world. Now, we'll keep this track related to try to keep people interested and hooked if you don't like the NBA. I'm going to give you some fa- uh, some famous Pistons greats here, and I want you to tell me who is their comp in the running world. And it can be past, present, future. It can be any event. So we'll start here. Chauncey Billups, Mr. Big Shot. Who's the comparison I hate to say this because he's my rival and nemesis from Rio, but I'd, my first off my head, I've got to say um, Matt Centrowitz. He's calm, cool, collected, and brings it when it matters most. All right, we'll stay the same team there, that same 04 title team. Uh, Rip Hamilton. elusive can get around he's he's skinny he doesn't do anything amazingly but he's very but he can find his his niche and that was the mid-range jump shot so that's the steeplechase i'll go evan jager (laughs) very good very good this is even better than i thought it was going to be uh gordon you want to ask him about some bad boys era pistons that'll be more probably more interesting a little more controversial yeah uh, you know some other guys we're going to bring up so you can think about about them in the back of your head but i'm not sure if you want have you watched the last dance have you watched i'm up to right now okay so you know about the whole like the way the pistons reacted to losing to chicago and kind of just walked off the shake have you ever had any of those type of moments someone that you have beaten couldn't handle it 
and was kind of like didn't want to deal with the humiliation of like losing whether it was in college or in the pro scene is there anyone who has like that like or is there any moment you don't need to call anyone out specifically but has that no, I'll, I'll call them out because we have a we have a good and bad history and deep down we're buddies so i don't mind calling them out but one time ben blankenship kicked my ass in a race and he did the slip through it afterwards because i was like 50 meters up behind him and i thought that was a bit uncalled for because i'd just come back from injury and so i've given him a hard time about it after that but he he enjoyed that moment it wasn't in jest necessarily either <laughs> Is there a history there? <laughs> oh, we have a long history, a good history. Um, but we, yeah, we're, there's been there's been moments when um, when we've been uh, competitive spirits have flared that up into a more of a rivalry. But no, we we've known each other for a long time, well before he had sort of made a name for himself on the international scene. When we nicknamed named him the Sponge because he always followed us around and did everything we did in training. In Europe, it all comes. It all comes from that Big Ten rivalry, the Midwest, Minnesota versus Michigan. That's where it comes from. I think that's where it. That's the root. I think where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Isaiah Thomas, who who's who's the Isaiah Thomas? See, I like Isaiah Thomas, but what he's most well known for is that no one likes him, and he's hasn't had. He was a great a great player, but he failed as a GM and coach. So who's someone that has <laughs> tried to replicate that? Who could I call out that was a fantastic runner that never never made it? Okay, I'll say Steve Scott. Steve Scott. Okay, going old school. Not a fair call, but he was a, a real fantastic runner. Some people weren't sure he sort of made a, a few enemies um but um and he just sort of happy happy to just keep his own little no that's not really a fair comparison he didn't fail as a coach he just chose to stay in his own local neighborhood he didn't become a star coach i would say see i was thinking i was going even older ian stewart ian stewart right 72 gets a medal ahead of pre pre's beloved at least in america and then he goes on, and he's a meat promoter that I think people have strong feelings about. Is that fair? You never want, but I wouldn't ever say him because you don't want to get on his bad side because he was, um, he he has a very impressive history in military. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> before he was in meat promoting. Okay. Well, if I disappear, you know why. <laughs> so uh, two, two more athletes. Uh, some big names. Bill Lambeer. Who's the Bill Lambeer? I wanted to go back to Ben Blankenship because he put, always gets over and pushes people in races. So I'm going to have to use another alternative. And this woman is often known for getting into scuffles and she hustles and busses and races. Brenda Martinez. Mm, okay. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Back in 2016 trials. That was, that was wild. Here we go. Dennis Rodman. Who's, who's the, the wild card dennis robin so i gotta categorize dennis as the one who's super talented doesn't really have a care in the world and would sort of do uncouth training styles um i guess you'd almost have to say usain bolt would be the dennis rodman right he sort of boasts Ooh. about eating crazy amounts of chicken nuggets and partying and staying up late but he still executes on the track yeah that's a big compliment well, to dennis well, robin i think um, who's the French 800 meter runner? I'm blanking. He won the world champs a oh, couple of years boss. ago. Boss, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, it's he's Dennis Rodman. Uh, I can okay. see got you got in some scuffles. I like it. Um, okay, were you for or against the Drummond trade? This is just not this is not track at all. We're not even we're not even trying to get a comparison here. What do you think of the Drummond trade? Uh, when you can get thirty million dollars off the books, um, that's always a good thing when you're in rebuilding phase. And it was amazing foresight now that the salary cap's going to come down with the the effect of this pandemic as well. So are you? What you came to the U.S. Well, wait, oh four, wasn't that right when you came? Did you come? Were you here for the championship? No, I came two thousand and two. I arrived the day the Red Wings won the Stanley Cup. Okay. So you, so, have, so you, you have the time up to winning the championship. Nate, Brandon, and I were sharing a hotel room in Eugene before the pre-classic in 04 when we watched the Pistons um, win their first championship. Well, not their first, their only championship of their era of the the going to work Pistons. So yeah, I, I saw that um, game five against the Lakers mm -hmm. um, from Eugene. Yeah, that was a fun team. That was an awesome team. Just all the parts coming together. It's fun to watch. I'm a, I'm a fan of Kobe and Shaq now as basketball players, but at the time I hated them, and it was so nice to like beat the superstar Lakers. They had all they had like four or five um, Hall of Hall of Honor Hall of Fame guys, and we were able to beat them with just these sort of no name guys that no one knew who just were an amazing team. It was the first time sort of team basketball started getting. Um, Focus. People always talked about college basketball as the where the team game is, and NBA is all ISO basketball. But the Pistons were the first to sort of really emphasize team ball, and that's now carried over to most of the league now, which is awesome to see. Yeah, Ben Wallace, Tayshawn Prince, just pure defense guys out there. That was a that was that was fun. I was a Laker hater at that point too, so to actually see them get beat with the that was when Malone and Peyton jumped on board too, right? To try to get get a ring at the last minute of their career. Yeah, that's right. There's a good Bill Simmons podcast talking about that finals, and you hear a lot of the the nuances of how that all played out. So it's some interesting locker room stuff. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Okay, one as, a, as a Sixers fan, I hated that Detroit team because they beat the Lakers, which the Sixers could not do with our coach. So I was very upset about that. But now <laughs> we're trusting the process. I was a 76ers fan before the Pistons, but I went to see their playoff game against each other, and I was switched by the crowd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's good that you left the Pistons talk to the end so people can have logged off if they need to. No, no, no. Uh, what, one more track-related. Um, a 21-year-old miler who's really good approaches you at a track meet and wants some advice. But you only you, you say, hey, I'm doing a 400 jog right now, cooling down. You, so you only have basically two minutes or so to give them advice. What would you, what would you tell them? It's not if, but when injuries happen. And when they do, take your time coming back. There's always another race. The professional circuit, you're not bound to the cross-country, indoor, outdoor. Just wait until you go through the proper phases of healing, strengthening, building up, getting a fitness, all of the different phases of training. And then once you're back and almost at peak fitness, then start planning out your race schedule because there's always another championship. There's always another race. And sometimes it's fun being in great shape when it's sort of out of season because then you can pick up some easy prize money and some off-season meat that they have. So that's my that's my encouragement. Too many kids like are always rushing back to get ready for the next thing and then they get on this perpetual cycle of injury and they never get to fully realize their potential. And you're really going to be healthy for two years straight of good continuous training to really 
maximize who you can be and the only way that can happen is to get strong and resilient and staying healthy is the best way to or to be healthy is the best way to stay healthy so seek that out first and fitness will come second nick willis of tracksmith congrats on the job and thank you so much for for taking some time i really appreciate it guys thanks so much thanks nick